Welcome to the Fellowship Regional Church Podcast. If I ever say to you, the controls on a Cessna Skyhawk have a lot more play in them than the Turbo Stationaire HD, you should probably say to me, have you flown both of those? If I ever say to you, there's just something so crisp about the air in the Congo, you should say, have you been to the Congo? If I say to you, the $1,000 bill feels like it's made of a different kind of paper than all of the other pieces of currency, you may say, they make a $1,000 bill? You've seen one? You've felt one? If I said to you, Mark is such a good guy. Mark is such a good guy. You know who I'm talking about. My friend Mark Wahlberg, you know. <laughs> such a nice, a lot of people think he's like the stuck-up Hollywood type, but really, He's just kind of insecure, but he has the sweetest heart, the funniest guy. You should probably say, I don't think you've ever met Mark Wahlberg, and I think your fascination with him is quite unhealthy. <laughs> you would be right on both counts. I've never flown a plane. I've never been out of the country. I've never seen a $1,000 bill. I don't know Mark Wahlberg, <laughs> sadly. Every spring, <clears throat> uh, the sweet little family of barn swallows um, infiltrates my garage and my front porch. And they build these wonderful mud huts on top of things. And I love them. Absolutely love them. We even have to make provisions for them at times, keeping the garage door a little bit open um, because it gets a little too hot in there or it gets a little too cold. Um, we don't want them locked away from the babies. And, you know, we care about them. They got one on the front porch as well, this little mud nest. The other day I was sitting at the table. Front doors open, screen doors uh, closed. And I hear this commotion on the front porch and I think to myself, I know exactly what both of those birds are because I'm a little bit of a weirdo when it comes to birds. And I'm like, this, that's the barn swallows and the sparrows. It sounds like they're having an altercation. I mean, a real Donnybrook. And I'm like, I should go check this out. So I go out and I open up the screen door and lo and behold, there is a pile of grass clippings on the welcome mat. I knew exactly what had happened. Maybe you don't, but I <coughs> knew exactly what had happened. Sparrows, which in my own, in my opinion, a lazy bird, very lazy bird, had moved into the mud hut belonging to the barn swallows. Okay? Barn swallows had already occupied this, but they had gone out to eat and to forage for berries or mosquitoes or whatever barn swallows forage for, 
And the sparrows had grabbed some grass and started cramming it inside. The barn swallows came home and were like, yo, this is our summer home. Get your grass out of, the, out of my house. They kicked it out. I went over there agreeing with the barn swallows 100%, punted all the grass clippings off on the yard. Because I'm like, I'm not going to be a part of this. Well, the sparrows came back the next day with more grass clippings. Tried to pack them inside the mud hut that belongs to my friends, the barn swallows. I saw it. I noticed it. Kate walked out. She's like, what's all the grass? And I said, listen, there's a war going on right now. <laughs> and we need to make sure we stay out of it. But we know whose side we're on, right? <laughs> have you ever known a nice sparrow? No, you haven't. What about a barn swallow? Yes, you have. She looked at me like, a little over the top. I said, just kick the grass clippings off the porch. That way the sparrows have to collect it all again if they want in there. There's something super lazy about trying to build your home on somebody else's foundation, you Sneaky little sparrows. That's what I thought. You sneaky little sparrows. Reminds me of the brood parasites. Maybe you haven't heard of this, but cowbirds, what they do, they find a nest that's occupied and they're not interested in living in it. All they want to do is lay their eggs in it and then let some other bird sit on them until they hatch. Called a brood parasite. That's even a little darker, really. She's going to have your babies over here. So long, babies. I got cows to peck on. Off they go. What a weird, what a weird thing. I'm in a book of Judges. I'll read you this passage. Judges chapter 2. Verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. One more time. Judges 2, verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. After that, after what? Well, it's kind of a long, drawn-out story, but I'll give it to you like this. Do you remember Moses? Marched into Egypt, delivered <clears throat> the Hebrew people out of Egypt and took them kind of into the desert, into the wilderness. And there he began to teach them about who God was on a very personal level. And so they would listen to Moses. And Moses got them all the way to the hill that could overlook Canaan, where they were headed, the promised land. And he made them this promise. You're going to go into Canaan. You're going to have your own property. You're going to have your own land. And when you get there, you must remember just a few things. Do not worship their gods. In fact, 
Run them completely out of the country. Run them out. Okay, we got it. Do not mess around with them. Do not. Run them out of the country. Okay, we get it. Do not intermarry. Do not intermarry with these people. Do not do it. Okay, we got it. In fact, do not walk with them. Metaphorical walk. Carry on life with them. Okay? Because what will happen is you will fall under this You'll fall under this thing that happens and before too long you'll be worshiping their gods and you'll forget all about me. And you can't forget about me. I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. Okay, 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 we got it. Can we please stop wandering in a wilderness for 40 years? Remember what I said. Okay, we remember, we remember. And God doesn't let Moses go in. In fact, he lets his assistant take him in. His name's Joshua. And so Joshua comes in, he brings all the people in, and then there is the problem. Joshua brings the people in, they begin to drive the people out. But every once in a while, there's one of the little tribes who's just like, you know what, I was going to drive them out. I was going to, I really was going to. I, and I knew, I remembered what you said, but I was also thinking about how it would be nice if maybe we just had dinner together. And they were like, uh, no. Why? Because if you have dinner with them, it might go too far and no. Keep them away from what you are doing. Now, let's take a political correctness break for just a moment. Want to? Why would God be so harsh about such a thing? Well, here's the reason why. This nation, these nations, that God was asking Joshua to drive out, were not these nice nations that you have in your mind. Oh, they're getting, they're getting, you know. Now they're victims, you know? That's not fair. You're being prejudiced. You're not letting those people speak for themselves. Those people had already spoken for themselves. They'd already spoken for themselves. You say they worshipped a plethora of different gods. And one of their gods that they worshipped was called the destroyer. The fish god. He was a violent, violent, violent God in their minds, in their making. And they were a violent people. They also worshipped another God that required human sacrifice. Why not carry out life with him? Because there's only one side of the barbecue you really want to be on, right? Not that one. And they're not nice. Child sacrifices. And God says, no, I value life too much. Do not intermarry with them. Because you know why God said that? Because he's smarter than us. That's why he said that. Because every man and woman in here knows that when you marry, some, when you marry someone, something happens to you. We always sleep with the fan on at my house. Always. That's how I've always done it, since as long as I've been me. Katie, on the other hand, has not always slept with the fan on, but now she does. <laughs> I can't remember a time when I was growing up that I ever went to extended family birthday parties 
It just seemed like such a silly thing to me. Now we go. All the time. It's just what we do. It's our thing. Because when you get married, something happens. God's fully aware of this. He invented marriage. It was his idea. He dreamt it up. And his idea was this. Let's take two people and let's mash them together and make them one person and then they'll just love all the same things at all the same time. And everybody's like, really? That's really how that works? <laughs> and, the, and the guys are like, yep, that's how it works. <laughs> I, I, love your, I love your sister. I love her. Yeah, because God knows something about marriage. He knows that when you take two people and you put them together, there's going to be a washout somewhere. You're going to have to give somewhere. You're going to pick the thing you want. She's going to pick the thing she wants, and then you're going to have to learn how to compromise together. I don't know about you, but it seems so strange sometimes that we would choose somebody who's opposite of us. Things that I've never liked ever in my life. We do all the time. <laughs> and I like it. Don't you? Yes, I do. Because that's what happens in marriage. You begin to compromise on things. And compromise can be a really good thing. There's things we had to learn how to compromise on. In our early years, when we would fight, we would fight differently than we fight now because we had to learn how to compromise. I like to fight like I had seen married couples fight, screaming, yelling, you know, hollering, all passionate and worked up. But two hours later when she comes out of the bathroom, I'm like, that wasn't a very good fight, you know. We had to compromise. It didn't work. You can't raise your voice. Okay, calm down. How are we supposed to have a fight? Calmly. That's not a fight. You know? Compromise. But compromise can be a bad thing, too. If you remember the story of Solomon, Solomon is this wonderful, wonderful king, the son of David. Wonderful king. He carries out everything that he's supposed to do, it's a very peaceful reign. But Solomon just keeps marrying people, just keeps marrying more women and more women, foreign women. Before too long, by the end of the book, Solomon is so far off course, he's building temples to other gods in Israel on the high places. And by the time you get to the end of the book, it says, and Solomon was led away and astray by foreign women. He just kept compromising and compromising. And you guys know how this works, right? Can we please do this? Can we please do this? Can we please? Okay. Fine, we'll go to your church. Fine. It's so important to me and my family. You know, my dad raised us this way, and him being the king of our country, it was just so great. And Solomon's like, whatever will shut you up, I will go to church with you. And he goes. There's a breakdown. So Joshua stands there before the people and he tells the people, now listen, do not intermarry. Do not mess around down here. 
Keep yourself holy. Keep yourself together. This is the promised land. This is God's land for you. He's running these people out. These people are murderous. And we're putting this people in. So don't mess up. He may as well have said there's cookies in the cookie jar. Whatever you do, don't touch them. They're warm and gooey on the inside. And there's cold milk in the fridge. Stay out of it. Okay. Israel can't stop sinning. Can't. Joshua dies. And all the people that had helped him kind of get to that place, they die. And Judges 2.10 comes in. And another generation is raised up who know nothing about the Lord or anything that he had ever done for Israel. See, this judges period is a very interesting period because they've, they're now in the promised land and all the countries around them, they all have kings and they all have armies, their own armies. But see, Israel didn't have a king because God said, I will be your king. And so they're like, well, we're kind of the odd man out. We don't have our own king. And so what they had were judges. These people that from time to time, when military, when other military presence would, would show up and begin to kind of move in on them, somebody would be raised up in the Spirit of God and they would go to work. They would just take care of it. They were like a military leader, but not like a dictator or a president, but this is the guy who leads us. We know how we're supposed to live by following the law of Moses. And we know how we're supposed to fight with everything that's inside of us. And we know who we're supposed to follow. This guy, because it seems the Spirit of God is on him. And so that's the way they did it. It started off okay. I mean, the, the judge's idea was an okay idea. It was good. It was, it was working. But there's this thing that keeps happening. And maybe you've seen this. You live in a period of peace. And then you compromise. You give in to sin. And it binds you up. It binds you up to the point to where now you can't move. Now you're in captivity. You're hung up. You're stuck. And so what you do is you cry out to God and God hears your cry. He comes in and he delivers you and he gives you peace. And then after a period of peace, you see something shining. And you think, a taste would be fine? And then you're bound up. You're in captivity. You cry out to God. He delivers you and he gives you peace. And then, again and again and again and again and again and again and again, all the way through the book of Judges, the word again just keeps happening. And again and again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And again, I don't know if you can relate with that. I can't. But there's something really, really familiar about that pattern. I do really, really good, and then I get distracted. I'm highly distractible. I don't know if you are aware of this. You are. Oh. I get distracted, and then I get off base, and then I get stuck. Then I cry out, and then God helps, and then I'm, okay, here we go. Now we're going to get it right this time. Oh, that's cool. Here we go. 
hard to stay focused. Finally, one guy says, I'm so sick and tired of this. We're doing everything wrong. There's always a revolutionary somewhere in the group who stands up and says, enough. I don't know how to fix it, but I'll tell you what, I've got to do something. I don't even know if it's right, but I've got to do something. Everybody's off course. For the last 18 years, they had lived underneath the reign of this tyrant king named Eglon. And to give you just a little idea about Eglon, he is enormous. I don't mean like his reputation or his entourage or his bank account. I mean his body. Scripture goes out of its way to say, and Eglon was a fat man. Just goes into it. And Eglon was a fat, fat man. Well, that's an interesting detail. And for 18 years, they've been paying tribute to Eglon, this big, fat, selfish king. Finally, one day, one guy said, I'm not paying this tribute anymore. His name is Ehud. I know this is Anthony Manis' favorite Bible story. It may be the entire Bible. The entire Bible, Anthony? Yes, sir. The entire Bible. Which will give you a little bit of insight into who Anthony is in just a moment. Judges chapter 3. I want to just read you this story. I don't know how many of you knew this was in here. But you'll be glad to know it in a moment. Judges 3, verse 12. Once again, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join them, Eglon came and attacked Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. That's Jericho. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer. Ehud, a, check this out, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. This is a good place to stop. Anthony, do you know what Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, what the word means? Son of my right hand. Ehud, a left-handed man from the tribe of the son of my right hand. Okay. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. Right? This is getting pretty covert. Little cloak and dagger here. He strapped his sword to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent, uh, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gil Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, Quiet! And all of his attendants left him. Then Ehud approached him. 
while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank into, even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be um, <clears throat> relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the door to the room, they took a key and unlocked them. And there they saw their Lord had fallen to the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Sierra. When he arrived there, he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down, from, <clears throat> went down with him from the hills with him, leading them. Wow. A left-handed man from a right-handed tribe makes a left-handed sword, ties it to his right thigh, and stabs the fattest man he can find in the belly, past the hilt, all the way through the handle. There's an interesting phrase in there. I don't know what version you had up here. There's a phrase and it says, and it came out the back. You would tie that to the knife, right? Some passages do not. Some versions of the Bible do not tie, it came out the back to the knife. They tie it to something else that came out the back. The weirdest story in the Bible, Anthony, you're weird, okay? <laughs> the weirdest story. What in the world do you do with a story like this? Some people say, well, you know what the problem with he was using his left hand because his right hand was messed up. Yeah, it doesn't say that. Well, maybe he's using his left hand because it's easier to conceal. It's easier to conceal because, you know, they're going to check him. If you're a right-handed guy, where do you keep your sword? On your left side. You bring it out here. You can't pull a dagger from here, right? You're not going to clear the holster, the sheath. You're not doing it. It's got to be over here. So it goes back in, and I guess they check him. They pat him down. And as he leans over, I have a secret message for you, and the king leans in. He leans in, he pulls the dagger, and he shoves it through the fat man. He goes back and he tells the people, let's take back our country and let's do everything we need to do. What am I supposed to do with this? This is just my imagination, but I'm just, I'm just wondering. Was there a moment for Ehud that he just said, Something has to be done. Something drastic has to be done. I have to drastically do something. I've been in the same pattern for 18 years doing the same thing, messing it up for the same thing all the time. It's so monotonous and humdrum. I'm so sick and tired of my own cycle of sin. 
my own cycle of self-pity, my own cycle of doing nothing about my problem. I don't know if God's asking me to do this or not, but I'm going to do it. He spends his days making a dagger, thinking through how to kill this guy. And it seems as if God is right in the middle of this deal because something drastic needed to be done. Maybe the question is this. What do you need to do that's drastic to change that cycle? Are you in that cycle? I mean, it's super easy to be in that place. But it's sometimes super hard to be able to tell if you're actually in that place. Let me give you just a little test. Do you find yourself saying the same things all the time? Complaining about the same things all the time? Do you find yourself sitting there thinking to yourself, I wish this would just get better, but yet you haven't done anything about it to make it get better? You can't stop complaining about the news. You know, that could be a sign. You realize that? You got to have something, you got to have a whipping boy somewhere in your story. And so what we do is we either say it's Trump or it's CNN, right? And so we pick a thing and we're just going to rage out against that thing because we've got all this other stuff that's going on inside of us. That's the thing we choose. You know, that's a real thing. Do you keep finding yourself going down the same paths trying to get away from the pressures and the stress in your life? Doesn't necessarily have to be bad, but you always do the same thing. then it's probably time for something drastic. It's probably time for you to spend a little time at the forge, hammering out a few thoughts inside your head, taking pieces of your heart and laying them on the anvil and banging away at them and start asking some really hard questions. Am I doing anything about the problems that are in my life at all? Because here's the reality. If we don't, there will be another generation that comes up behind us who will not know the Lord who will not know what he has done for us. Can you describe God to your kids? Can you describe him? How do you describe him? How do you refer to him? Can you highlight characteristics about God that you yourself have experienced on some level? Can you talk about it? Because I know this sounds mean, but coming to church, dropping your babies off at children's church, coming up here and never mentioning God again through the rest of the week is kind of like brood parasites. Put your eggs in somebody else's nest and let them do their job and then I'll just handle all of me because I'm having a hard enough time keeping myself together. How in the world can I help anyone else? Get your stuff together. Life is hard. There is absolutely no doubt. But get your stuff together. You have a team of people who are sitting here in the same room as you who want to help. 
You have a God who made himself human, came in human form, sacrificed himself to give you the power to overcome these things. You cannot build a home on somebody else's foundation. You can't build a home without doing the hard work. What's your expectation from your kids? What's the expectation that you hold on your kids? Let's ask a better question. Have you established a Christian culture inside your home? Because if you establish a Christian culture inside of your home, do you know what your kids will do? They'll immediately understand they have to understand who God is. You can't help but talk about God. But the one thing that I don't want to be a part of is I do not want to be a part of a community or a culture or a generation who does not know God and cannot talk about what the good that he has done for us. See, here's the other side, and you're thinking, well, I'm so glad I'm past that point, Jared. I'm older, and I don't have those kids. I got news for you. There's a basement full of them. basement full of them. If you've got it together, it's time to give. It might mean something drastic. It might mean something strange. It might mean something weird. It might be something so organic. It might be something to where you step out in faith and you say, I don't even know if I'm right in what I'm doing, but I feel like I have to do something. I have to change something. You're 100% right. You're 100% right. You cannot talk about things that you've never experienced. I can't tell you what it's like in a Congo because I've never been. I can't tell you what it's like to fly a plane because I've never flown a plane. I don't know Mark Wahlberg. The only thing I can do is I can tell you what I have done, what I have accomplished, who I do know, what I have experienced. That's all I can do. The question becomes, what do you know? What have you experienced? Have you experienced God face to face? Do you chase after him? Do you spend time in prayer and reading scripture so that you can understand who he is? Because if you don't, what do you know? You're just going to stand up there and talk about the Congo? Talk about flying planes you've never flown? What do you know? You can't pass anything on if you haven't experienced it first. It's got to be in your life first. If we expect our kids to meet any sort of expectation, then it has to be in us first. The good news is this. We have a God who loves us, and we have a God who forgives us, and we have a God who wants to engage with us. And through Jesus Christ, it's possible for us to get into his presence, for us to repent and say, you know what, I've done such a terrible job of representing my family. I've done such a terrible job of of trying to meet God in that place. I've done a terrible job of teaching my kids. I've done a terrible job of of exemplifying uh, an example of Christ to my spouse. But I'm done. And I'm going to stand at this forge and I'm going to bang on metal until I figure out what I need to do next. Jesus Christ will move into your life The Holy Spirit will empower you just like he did Ehud and just like he did the other judges. And he will help you make a change in your life, but you have got to lay it down first. That means you begin by saying, I can't figure this out and I'm broke and I need help. That's where you start. I can't figure this out, I'm broke, I need help. 
from there, you move forward because you have a Savior who loves you. If you do not know Jesus Christ and you want to know him, I would love to sit down and talk to you about him. I do know him. I have some wonderful experiences I'd like to share with you about him. He probably has some things he would like to share with you about me. I would ask him not to, 